Hello and welcome to the 37 Signals podcast. On this episode, the third and final round of Rapid Fire Q&A. This is where Jason and David answer questions that were posted by readers at the Signal vs. Noise blog. So here we go. Okay, Antoine Vallot says, I think it would be most powerful if you talked about the trade-offs of the 37 Signals model. Clearly, you embrace radical approaches to many aspects of business and, you, and you've made it work. But what are the shortfalls of your approach, the things it does badly, and how do you deal with them? I think the first problem is characterizing this as radical. Like, in my mind, it's absolutely radical to waste so much time as most people do in most businesses. It's radical to have meetings with 10 people that go on for four hours. It's radical to um, have innate policies that don't delegate to the the person who actually knows something about it and can make a, a reasonable decision. There's so many sort of standard business approaches that I find absolutely radical in just how incredibly stupid they are. In my mind, what we're doing is anything but radical. In my mind, what we're doing is the common sense, uh, low effort approach. So I just take offense to to that off, off the gate. But yeah, I'm sure there's uh, trade-offs and shortfalls to it. I mean, one thing can be if you don't have a clear policy on something, sometimes there's some uncertainty. There's some uncertainty you have to deal with and there might be different opinions on what's the right way to do and you can't just fall back on a, on a policy to resolve it all. But I mean, is that really the answer anyway? Um, so I think usually we just have the the sense that when we're looking at the practices that we have, if the trade-offs are not worth it, if there are things it's not good for, we try to change it. Like absolutely just about anything we do at 37 Signals is uh, open for change. If it's not working, if there's something that's, that's not being done right, we change it. And that's been even more acutely uh, implemented with our new team structure where we do these uh, iterations of two weeks that uh, run in, in terms of two months. After each two-week iteration, we have just a retrospective. What worked? What didn't? What should we do different next time? How do we take on less work if we had too much? Or any of these things that pop up. When you basically consider the entire operation plan for your company to be a right board, that you can change anything, add anything, amend anything, then you don't have to walk around with things like, oh, yeah, that's bad. That doesn't work. If you ever say, oh, yeah, that's bad. That doesn't work. F and change it. I think it also depends on what you're making, too. When you're a software company, you can behave very differently than if you're an urban planner or someone that you know is building bridges, doing something like that. Sure, but I also think that's sometimes a cop-out. No, I, I there think... are very few people who actually build bridges. The vast majority of businesses, I'd say, are more like software companies than they're like bridge builders. So, no, it doesn't apply to everybody everywhere. But I find the, hey, but if you're building bridges thing to be somewhat of a paper dragon. Fair enough. Um, Ben says he'd love to know more about how things are run with the staff. Who reports to whom? How do you hire? Use any skill tests or just go by how they've worked with you? How do you get ideas? How do ideas get put into do priority or not? Any regular meetings? Is everything neat based, et cetera? David, you want to take? I actually have to step out for like uh, two minutes. So okay. you want to take yeah, that, David? I'll, I'll be right back. I'll run on that. Um, so let's let's see. So who reports to whom? Um, we basically just have that. Uh, myself, Jason, and, and Ryan have some sense of just making calls on, on what's a good fit for the 
product and sometimes end up making the calls on that. But all of that is open to discussion. There's no like, hey, you have to do this or hey, you have to do that. It's usually just open to debate and it just tends to be that um, we often have stronger opinions on some of these things. But calling it out or reporting is, is missing the boat a little bit. But otherwise, um, Jason and I uh, often are, are the people that um, handle these things when something comes up and we need to make a decision on, on whatever and it hasn't played out that way. That sounds incredibly convoluted. In practice, it, it really works very easily in terms of just bring something up when there's an issue and we'll deal with it and go on from there. How we hire, um, we usually hire by making sure that we actually do a skill test. So for designers, that usually means you get to design or redesign something maybe on one of our products and you get a week to do it and we pay you to do it uh, and then we discuss the final result. So for designers that's actually doing some real work on, on one of the products or pages that we have. For programmers um, the skill test usually comes in that we primarily hire people who've already worked in open source. So we can already look at the code that they have out there and if they don't have any code already published very unlikely, then we asked them to send us something. I would never hire a programmer without actually looking at real code that he wrote. All right. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think that's I'm back, by the way. So. All right. All right. Uh, next up, uh, an anonymous poster wants to know how Queen Bee works. He's a single-person business, and uh, developing his back-end billing system has been a real pain in the butt. So maybe first... It's been a real <laughs> pain in our butt, too. <laughs> maybe define what Queen Bee is, too, along the way. I, I think we should not answer questions from anonymous people. What do you think? Up to you guys. All right, next. That's fine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Anonymous person who asked about Queen Bee, leave your name next time and we'll answer the question. How about that? Uh, Mike G., what happened to the Rails University idea? I'm not sure if it was Rails University or just 37 Signals University, um, but uh, we want to do a lot a lot of uh, workshops and classes and seminars, and we're actually working on, on building out our new office right now, which is going to have a roughly a 40-seat theater. Uh, in in the space where we can hold events often, so I think once that's in place, uh, you'll be hearing more about that from us. All right, Chris asks: Things have gone wrong. Estimates are blown, and deadlines are passed. The client is pissed. What next? Don't don't. <laughs> oh, I don't know. We're not really in this business anymore, uh, thankfully. Uh, and this question is why we're not in this business anymore, I suppose. But um, I just think you got to be realistic with people, you know. Budgets are blown, or estimates are blown, deadlines have passed, things are over budget, uh, probably because you're a bad estimator, and humans are bad estimators, and people wanted too much in too short an amount of time, and so you just got to be realistic about scope, and say, if you want more, it's going to cost you more, and that's kind of how you have to do it, I think. I think communicating along the way, too, if you just kind of hide out in a bunker for weeks or months at a time, and then try to just show up one day, that's when problems come about, but if you're in constant contact with your clients, you're going to be more in the loop with each other. Well, the problem is also how you set it up. Most people set up, all right, we're going to build this system in this amount of time and for this amount of money. Uh, dude, that's not going to work. That's not going to play out well. So you set up the boundaries for this to fail from the get-go. If your contract is fixed time, fixed scope, um, fixed budget, well, obviously it's not going to work. I mean, do you need any more proof than all the other failed projects that you did under those uh considerations no it's not going to work so you got to 
step up somehow and, and change that dynamic, set it up in such a way that there's something that can give when you run onto things that will inevitably take too long or longer than you thought. So how are you going to deal with that? Are you going to pare down scope? Uh, are you going to spend more time? Like you got to be flexible in these things. And usually people get into situations where they have no outs, where there's no flexibility, and then it's bound to fail. German Munoz says, what have been your biggest mistakes since you started the company? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't really think we've made any big mistakes. Uh, we made a, uh, we've screwed up in a few spots here and there. One of the things was when we first started our, or came up with the idea to, to sell products, um, we wanted to charge annually. And so we built a system to bill annually. And it turns out that when we applied for a credit card merchant account, they wouldn't take on that much risk because if someone canceled three months in and they wanted their money back, the credit card company would really be on the on the hook for that. So they forced us to go into a monthly model, which actually turned out to be a great thing for us. We could actually charge more and it'd be cheaper for customers up front. So that was a win. But it was kind of a mistake in that we didn't really look into it up front and we built some stuff and we had to rebuild it. But uh, also high-rise, we got through about halfway done with high-rise and we had to like scrap it because it was just too complicated and wasn't working very well. So we lost some time on that. But uh, I don't think we've made any big mistakes. Nothing has really hurt us, I don't think. Um, just We just keep moving forward. I don't know. Dave, is there anything you can think of, David, that you consider a big mistake besides no, hiring Matt? I, I don't. <laughs> I don't usually um, spend that much time on it. Like for the yeah. mistake part, it's like you just like, all right, what do we have to change? And then I just have a tendency to forget about it yep. because we've changed how it works and, and now we're not making that mistake. I don't think it's worth really obsessing that much over mistakes. Just to see it as that, okay, there's something that didn't work. Let's change what didn't work and move on with it. It doesn't need this amount of ceremony and uh, sort of thing going on just about, oh, we made mistakes, da, 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 da. No, just, I mean, change stuff and move on. All right. Tony says, I'd love to hear about marketing tips for a new startup. Uh, we kind of covered this a bunch, basically. I, I, our, our point of view is... Um, is you should be you should have a point of view and you should talk about it and share it and teach it and that's kind of the way that we know how to do it um, so that that would be my advice it takes a long time it's going to take you it could take you years to build up an audience big enough to start spreading the word for you uh, of course you have to have a great product and all that stuff too but I think you I think a point of view is 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 worth investing in um, more so than like a series of ads or a PR firm things like that and rework will have a lot more on that too. Getting real yep. also does too. If you want, if you want to take a look at getting real, um, Chris wants to know about our software pros process, uh, the technologies we use, and how we use them when building apps. Um, so we basically use the default Ruby and Rails stack. Um, we don't mix in too much other stuff. Well, this is pretty obvious since Ruby and Rails was extracted from Basecamp. So by almost definition. The default Ruby on Rails stack is what we, we use at 37 signals. Um, so for we use test unit for testing. Uh, we use ERB for the template language. We use all of the default tools you would get in a, in a vanilla Rails stack. There's very little we mix in from the get-go to get us started. It's basically just things, hey, how do you de deploy to our cluster and a few things like that. Everything else has a tendency of just ending up in, uh, in Ruby on Rails um, from the get-go. And otherwise, I mean, we do, uh, if not always, 
test-driven development, we certainly do test-supported development. Um, having a good test suite is, is definitely very important, especially when you deal with products like we have that live on for six or seven years. You want to have a good coverage of, uh, of what you got going for you. Um, and I think maybe some of it has changed a little bit now that we have some bigger products. Basecamp sometimes has some just eye-opening numbers in terms of how big are the tables when we need to do a migration and so forth. That can... That could change some things, and some things we're slower at getting out just because there's more performance concerns now and more concerns about uh, messing things up. So we moved perhaps a little bit from a model where in the early days we would just um, deploy maybe 10 times a day in the middle of the day and just do migrations on the fly because the data sets were small enough that we could do that. Till now, where migrations usually happen on the weekends and so on to inconvenient the least amount of people. So, yeah, that's it. All right. Dennis Weimer wants to know, how do you handle and maintain support for millions of users with so few employees? Uh, we do all of our customer service and support via email. We get about, our, our volume has jumped recently. I think we're getting about 400 or so emails a day. We currently have two people to handle that traffic. Uh, we're looking for another person or two to help out there. Um, and that's pretty much how we do it. We, we try and get back to people as quickly as we can. Sometimes that's within 10, 15 minutes. Other, other times it might take an hour or so. Um, but we just do our best to uh, get back to people and give them good answers and, and, and help them through any problems they're having. And I think the key here is also we build simple stuff. So don't if you're building a very complex product that people are going to have a lot of questions about, well, duh, you're going to need a lot of support people. But we were lucky enough, actually, that we started out with just Jason answering support. Like, how long did you answer support for? Probably First a couple of years. years. Yeah, yeah, at least. Yeah. So we got all that hurt straight on us, straight on Jason. Like, if yeah. there was something people couldn't figure out, Jason would be very sure to tell us because he was getting a ton of email about it all the time. So we would change it. So we've been constantly refining the product to make it simpler and easier to understand and have less common things that you run into. Um, and I think that's absolutely key. It's very easy to build a product where just with a few thousand users, you're going to have a shitload of support requests just because you built something that's hard to understand. Most products, most software, in fact, is way too hard to understand and requires help from, from the outside. So um, I see it as a testament of just us being reasonably successful at, at building something simple. Yeah, that's actually a really strong point. And Your uh, product itself is like the best customer service rep you have, really. You know? Um, yep, absolutely. There's nothing yeah. better than customer service you don't need. Yeah. And Dennis also wants to know how you successfully made the transition from web design company to the company you now are. How did you handle clients during the transitional period and afterwards? And what are the things you have to pay attention to? Because he's trying to do something similar. I actually see another question about that further down. So let's kind of move on and we might hit that All right. in a minute. Uh, Steve says he'd love to hear a discussion about the tipping point from taking 37 signals from a part-time endeavor to a full-time job. Yeah, so um, this is a quick one. Um, really, the tipping point is when we were making enough money to just build software, that's when we started to build just software. Before that, we were making more money in our consulting business, so we did that. But at a certain point, we saw that Basecamp was going to make more than our consulting business. It did make more, and we stopped doing consulting. But it was kind of a ramp. I mean, like, we started doing more and more Basecamp and less and less customer stuff or client stuff, and then eventually we didn't do any client stuff anymore. So it, and it took a while, too. Like, yeah, it wasn't it like, like a Basecamp. year and a half or something. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't like Basecamp was paying all the bills on, on day two or four. Or whatever and that yeah. sort of goes part into a lot of people see as oh you guys blew up really fast or this was basecamp was all of the sudden a huge success no it wasn't 
took a long time. Yeah. Michael Hopkins would like to hear about what your team does to learn. Um, I don't know what everyone does. I mean, some people go to conferences, other people just pay attention and observe things. I think that's kind of the best way to learn. It's just to, to stay focused on, on your kind of your industry in some ways and see what everyone else is doing and pay attention to the right news sources and learn stuff that way and then just try it out. I mean, that's really the best way to learn anything is just to, to try it, experiment with stuff. Uh, my, my approach but, to this is basically just whenever I get annoyed about something, that's when I learn. So, like, I'm annoyed about how a technical process works or something else works, and I don't necessarily know right now how to fix it, so i got to find out how to fix it. So i got to learn whatever skills I need to pick up or patterns or whatever else you have to, to fix things that bug me. Like, I typically do not just read up on things that I'm cherry happy about. Like, for example, programming. I still love Ruby. I love the programming language Ruby. So I have no motivation right now to, to learn another programming language. I understand that, I mean, you can learn other points of view from other programming languages and they can expand your horizon and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, whatever. That just doesn't apply to me. Ruby does not annoy me as a language to any reasonable amount that I would want to do something about it, unlike what I used to work with. Java and PHP annoyed the hell out of me all the time. So that was my motivation to learn Ruby. Okay, and uh, Devin wants to know about back-end solutions you have developed, like how you deal with inactive accounts. Uh, that's sort of a longer technical yeah. setup. All right, and yeah. uh, maybe we'll end on this one then. Kirby says, bacon. Talk about lots and lots of bacon. <laughs> <laughs> well, the best way to hear about bacon is to listen to Jim Gaffigan talk about bacon. Oh, my so God, I Jim... love that session <laughs> look up jim gaffigan bacon on youtube and uh, he, he he'll answer it for us and he talks about it for 20 minutes too it's one of the best comedy sessions i can remember i've recently seen all right that wraps it up for this final round of the rapid fire q a we'll be back with another i guess you'd call it normal episode of the podcast next time uh, thanks for listening. If you want to see links to anything we discussed on this or previous episodes or want to hear previous episodes, go to 37signals.com slash podcast. Thanks. Bye.